there is a time period called the three weeks, which begins with the 17th day of Tammuz, and it ends three weeks later with the ninth day of Av. Every year, we commemorate the events that happened during these three weeks, and we observe them by national collective mourning. This mourning is the result of a collection of calamitous events that transpired to our ancestors during these inauspicious times. These three weeks are bookended by fast days. There's six fast days in the Jewish calendar, and four of them are to remember bad things, and to relive bad things, and to try to repent for those bad things that happened in the past. Of course, the other two are Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is not a sad day. It was a very joyous day. On Yom Kippur, we fast for an entirely different reason. We're fasting because we're going above. We're ascending to become like angels, and therefore we don't need food. We're not mourning. It's not a sad day. It's actually such a happy day, such a joyous day, that it's above food. You can't mar the day by eating. But there's four days which are morning fast days, morning with the M-O-U-R. We're mourning sad events. And those events primarily revolve around the, the destruction of the temples, first and second temple, and the things that led up to it and the things that were the ripple effects of those terrible calamitous events. Both temples were destroyed on the ninth day of Av, which but 500 and some odd years apart from each other. And this ninth day of Av is like the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. Bad things continually happen on this day, and therefore it's a day that we uh, commemorate it by mourning, by fasting, and by a host of other restrictions. But these three weeks essentially have an, like an ascending order of mourning. It begins uh, with the fast day of the ninth day, uh, of the 17th day of Tammuz, and then there's the time all the way up to the nine days of the first little bit of the month of Av, and finally they reach their crescendo on the ninth day of Av itself, which is again the, the, the peak, the climax of the morning, and then it is over after the essentially the mid-afternoon of the 10th day of Av. So I want to talk about what happened on these days and how we commemorate them, but I think a good place to begin is just this idea in general. The idea that things that happened, some of them essentially more than 3,000 years ago, most of them more than 2,000 years ago, it should have any relevance to our life today. That's that's like a uniquely Jewish phenomenon. We all know that the temples were destroyed and burned down, and we know which day it happened. And I was thinking last night that it actually happened in America, too. In the War of 1812, the Brits came and burned down the White House. But I challenge anyone in this room and anyone in the audience to tell me what date that actually happened on. That's only 204 years ago. Does anyone know what date it happened on? And the answer, for those who are interested, is August 24th, 1814. But no one knows that. Why, why don't people know that? And we seem to know things that happened, the first temple was 2,500 years ago, second temple 2,000 years ago. We, we know the date and we still commemorate it millennia later. And I was saying, there's only two bad days that people know what happened. Pearl Harbor, because of the famous speech that happened the following day by FDR, a date which will live in infamy. And of course, September 11th, because it's literally called September 11th. And... Maybe in sometime in the future, like that date in, in itself will will, uh, uh, will be forgotten too. Maybe, uh, but what day was Abraham Lincoln assassinated? No one seems to know. We had a Jewish governor named Gedalia Ben Achikam who was assassinated, and one of those four days that are days of mourning is the third day of Tishrei, the day after Rosh Hashanah which is called Tzom Gedalia, the Fast of Gedalia, where we're commemorating the assassination of a Jewish governor 2,000 years ago. Why? Because it was a blow to the Jewish nation. And what I'm trying to try to draw out this discrepancy, events that happened thousands of years ago, not only do we know what date it happened, 
but we still commemorate it now. And I think it raises an important question. Why are we commemorating events or why are we so fastidious about remembering when they happened and reliving them every year? And I think it gets to the critical issue about this whole time. We believe that the events that happened to our forefathers and essentially the events that happened to us as well, they're overseen by God and uh, even manipulated and directed by God. And... God decides what happens to us based upon our own behavior. You see this, of course, throughout the Torah. Throughout the whole book of Deuteronomy is based upon this idea that our behavior will guide God's treatment of us. So if you do good, you'll be treated well. If you do bad, you'll be treated poorly. If you behave properly, you'll be able to flourish in the land of Israel. If you don't, if you descend to idolatry, if you descend to sin, if you re- reject God and his Torah – well, then you're going to be banished from the land of Israel and scattered throughout the land. Terrible things are going to happen to you. And if you do repent, well, you come back to the land of Israel. That's one of the major themes in Torah. And thus, when we look back to things that happened 2,000 years ago, it's not like a random event happened. It's a bad event. And let's remember it because it's a bad thing that happened. It's much more instructive and much more relevant to our lives. It happened for a reason, and it is not being undone for the same reason. We're told the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry, which means if there was no idolatry, the first temple would not have been destroyed. Moreover, if idolatry ceases to be practiced amongst the Jewish people, the temple will be rebuilt because there's a cause and effect. The cause for the bad thing is the idolatry, and thus if you remove the cause, then the effect goes away Two, so there's no more idolatry, there's no more destruction of the temple. I.e., how do you rebuild the temple after it was destroyed because of idolatry? By seizing the cause for the destruction, seizing idolatry, the temple will, as a result, consequently be rebuilt. Similarly, the second temple is destroyed because of senseless hatred, because of a variety of other things that happened. Those causes are obviously still in effect today because we don't have a temple. And therefore, it's not just mourning events that happened a long, long time ago. It's actually trying to rectify those same causes for those events because that will undo what those causes brought about. And therefore, this is, again, very uniquely Jewish attitude. We're trying to identify the underlying cause of those bad things that happened so long ago, but obviously continue to happen. And by rectifying those causes, the result of those causes will be undone immediately. When we see calamitous things that happen to our nation, we apply them inwardly and say, we did something to deserve that. Let's figure out the cause for what we did to deserve it. Let's fix it. And therefore, we'll stop deserving it and it'll stop happening. In fact, the Talmud tells us something very striking. Every generation that the temple was not rebuilt in it, it's as if the temple was destroyed. A very shocking statement. We have another temple in 2,000 years. Again, the temple is represents the Jewish relationship with God. It's a, it's a place where someone sins and goes to the temple, brings a sacrifice, prays, repents, and the sin is, is nullified, is fixed. It, it, it is the ultimate symbol of the closeness of the Jewish nation and their creator. And we say, if the temple was not rebuilt in our generation, it's as if it was destroyed in our generation. Well, how, how could it be destroyed in our generation if we didn't have it? The answer is because if the temple was not rebuilt, then obviously had the temple been built, it would have been destroyed. Because the same reasons why it got destroyed initially, they're still present today, obviously because it wasn't rebuilt. If those reasons that caused its destruction initially were not present today, well, then it would be rebuilt. So if it was built, it would have been destroyed by the fact that it was not rebuilt in our generation. And of course, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the second temple was destroyed by the Romans. But we don't look at it and say that, oh, the Romans destroyed the temple, or the Babylonians destroyed the temple. We say that we lost our godly protection that availed, that allowed 
the Romans to destroy us. Because remember, God is omnipotent. God's not worried about Romans or their phalanx warfares or the barbaric Babylonians. It means if they destroy the temple, it means that God removed his protective shield on us and allowed that to happen. And you know what? If it wasn't the Romans, it could have been other people. But regardless, it was all a reflection of the underlying behavior of our nation. And therefore, we try to identify that cause, the root cause, not the way it manifested itself. You go to the underlying, not not the symptoms. You go to the underlying reason for the illness, just like a doctor would do. If you just treat treat the isolated symptoms, you're not going to solve the problem because maybe the symptom you'll fix one symptom here and it'll manifest itself manifest itself in in some other symptom over there. We try to get to the underlying cause, and then everything else uh, will uh, be fixed as a result. So when we have these three weeks of mourning, of sadness, of reflection, it's important for us to learn why they happen. What are we commemorating? Uh, but also to think about the spiritual side of it, the underlying spiritual causes that allowed such things to happen, and thus it's, it's quite relevant to us today, and that is that should be the focus. The focus should be, okay, these things happened a long time ago, but they're still happening as evident by the fact that they're not being undone, and therefore let's think of ways that we ourselves as individuals and as communities could try to fix those underlying causes. So I want to go through the background of these two days and the time between them. So the the most comprehensive source for this time period is found in the book of Tinus. The book of Tinus is one of the books of Talmud, and the word Tinus means fast day or ta'anit. And of course, we have multiple fast days that happen during this era and therefore, it's appropriate for the background of these two days and the time in between them to be discussed in that book. So chapter 4, Mishnah 6, tells us that there were five calamitous events that happened on the 17th day of, 17th day of Tammuz and five catastrophic events that happened on the ninth day of Av. And thus, we could survey these days and find the underlying causes of them and try to relive them during those times and try to reflect on them. So I want to read these 10 things that happened and then we'll go through them one by one. This five things that happened to our forefathers on the 17th day of Tammuz and five things on the ninth day of Av. On the 17th day of Tammuz, Nishtabru Haluchos. The luchos, the tablets, were destroyed. The first set of tablets. Ubatal hatamid, and the tamid. The tamid is the daily sacrifice that ceased. Vihibakahair, the city was breached. The city of Jerusalem was breached after it was laid siege. We know Jerusalem is always known for its fortifications. It is on a mountain, and therefore it is usually quite easy to fortify and defend. And every time Jerusalem was taken, it was first laid siege, and then after a prolonged siege, the walls were breached. Vesaraf Apostamus es Torah, and some guy named Apostamus burned the Torah. Vehemit Selem Behechel, and an idol was erected in the temple. That's the five things that happened on the seventh day of Tammuz. Tishabav on Tishabav on the ninth day of Nidra of essentially consular arts, it was decreed upon our forefathers that they will not enter the land in the aftermath of the sin of the spies. God tells Moshe, I'm not going to destroy them, I'm going to give in to your prayer. But this whole nation, this this whole community that is alive today, they're not going to go into the land of Israel. They're going to be replaced by their children and grandchildren. First and second temple were destroyed. The city of Betar was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was plowed, was raised, raised with a Z. And the Mishnah ends, Once the month of Av enters, once we begin that month, you try to diminish joy. Just like on the month of Adar, the month that we have the holiday of Purim in it, the, the, we're told, Mishanichnas Adar, 
when 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 Adar enters, you increase joy. When Av enters that month, you start to diminish with the joy. So what are these things? Let's start with them one by one. We know that 50 days after the Jewish people left Egypt, they were encamped by Mount Sinai. And in the morning of the sixth day of Sivan, which is exactly 50 days after the Jewish people left Egypt, they had the most momentous experience in all of human history, the revelation at Sinai. Moshe goes up to the mountain. The Jewish people listen in on a conversation between Moshe and God. They are temporarily uplifted to become like angels, to become prophets. They hear the Ten Commandments by God. It's such an awe-inspiring experience. And then what happens next? So they got like a condensed version of Torah. But now Moshe has to go up to heaven to communicate, to be in commune with God, to get the rest of the Torah, to get the details. You know, they got like kind of the Ten Principles, the Ten Tenets of, of, of Torah, but now we're going to get the details. So Moshe goes up to heaven, and the rest of the nation goes back to the camp. And there's only one person that's there by the mountain, not with the nation and not with Moshe, and that, of course, is Joshua. Joshua is at the foot of the mountain waiting for Moshe to come down, which is, of course, uh, always emblematic of, of, of the relationship between a teacher and a student. Even though the teacher is not there, the student is waiting there to be there, to not depart from the teacher, and to wait for his return. So the Jewish nation goes back to the camp, and Moshe is in heaven, and, of course, everyone's eating manna, which is pretty cool, and the people in the camp are eating manna, and Joshua's eating manna. Moshe is up in heaven, he's not eating anything, he's like an angel, he's arguing with angels, debating with angels, negotiating with angels, but ultimately studying with God. And after he gets the whole Torah, he memorizes it all, and God gives him two stones hewn by the finger of God that tell us, or that have written in it, the Ten Commandments that were told 40 days prior. 40 days later, Moshe goes down from the mountain, and he meets Joshua at the bottom. And they hear noises. And there's a whole discussion. Joshua tells Moshe, I think that there's a war going on. That's what it sounds like. And he says, no, it's not a war. There's no victors. There's no losers. There's something. There's a problem. There's other problems that we have. As they approach the camp, they see the revelry of the golden calf. The Jewish people had made a miscalculation. They thought Moshe was supposed to come the day prior. Uh, they thought 40 days meant 40 days, when in reality they made 40 full, complete days. And therefore, they counted the day that he went up as a full day. Really, it was only a partial day, so it didn't count. Regardless, they were duped into making this golden calf. And uh, some of the new Egyptian immigrants, if you will, that joined the nation uh, together uh, with uh, other rabble-rousers and uh, sorcerers decided to make this whole problem, the golden calf, as a replacement for Moshe. Moshe gets there, and the first thing he does, he takes the two tablets that he was holding in his hand and crashes them into the floor and shatters them. And then, of course, he takes the golden calf, he grinds it into a fine dust, puts it in the water, makes everyone drink from it. And the people who were the instigators of the golden calf died when they drank the water. And then he tells the Levite brethren to go grab their sword. Anyone who participated in it, go kill them. And indeed, 3,000 people die. And then Moshe turns back to God and says, okay, let's try to uh, grant forgiveness for this nation. Don't destroy them. And God eventually agrees and tells him, okay, build the tabernacle. And they start building the tabernacle eventually, a little bit later on. After Moshe goes back up to heaven, goes back, ends up going three times and coming back down with a second set of tablets. But what was the date that corresponded to Moshe destroyed the tablets the day after they built the golden calf, uh, the day when Moshe reunited with the nation and destroyed what was a godly given set of tablets, that was the 17th day of Thomas. And thus, it, got, it kind of got, got off to a bad start this day. And because it was a day that marked the Jewish people rebelling against God, it became a day that will live in infamy because a lot of other bad things happened on that day uh, years later. 
So the next thing we're told in the Talmud is that the, that the Tamid uh, ceased. What is the Tamid? So the Tamid uh, literally means ever-present or ongoing. And it refers to a sacrifice that was given every single day. Every single day there were two daily sacrifices that bookended everything that happened in the temple. The one in the morning, first thing in the morning, last thing in the afternoon. There was what's called a Tamid, a daily sacrifice. And this was done for hundreds of years without missing a day. In fact, there is a midrash, interesting midrash, that says that what's the most important mitzvah of the Torah? What's the most important thing? Which means the first sacrifice you do in the morning, the second sacrifice you do in the afternoon. What it means is that what's the most important thing? What affects the most change? Consistency. Ongoing. Every day, no matter what, rain, rain or shine, there's always this sacrifice and this prayer that goes along with it for the Jewish nation. And that is the most apt to influence change. What day did it stop? No. First of all, there is a discussion. Is this the first temple era, second temple era? Regardless, what happened was the Jewish people were laid siege to, the city of Jerusalem was laid siege to, and they were out of animals. They couldn't import animals to do sacrifices. And therefore, on this day, on the seventh day of Talmud, they did not have the ability to bring sacrifices because they had run out of animals. And that was, uh, again, a, a day that marked a, a sad devolvement in the status of the nation because this the one thing that remained constant finally ceased. And that was on this day as well. The next thing that happened on the 70th day of Tammuz is that this, the walls of the city were breached. The Talmud says that this refers to the second temple era. The second temple, we're talking about the year 70 or 68, depends on which sources you rely on. The city of Jerusalem was laid siege to. And in fact, we, are, we do get very dramatic accounts of the siege of Jerusalem. We have them from Josephus. We have them in the Talmud. But what actually happened was that the Romans were responding to a revolt that was known as the Great Revolt that happened in the year 66. The Jewish people were fed up with the way they were treated by the Romans. And they were fed up that they weren't granted the equal protection, that they were totally uh, fair game in the hands of everyone and the, the Roman overlords did not defend them. And they said, that's it, we're done, we're fed up with the Romans, they've been here for 150 years, we're going to kick them out. And they mounted a revolt, which was moderately successful. But the Romans are not known to be very pleasant to those who question their authority. And they fought back. And eventually, they were you know, taking over town after town with very harsh treatment of those who refused to capitulate. They would have them crucified, and then they would torture them and kill them all and put salt in the ground so nothing would grow there for years, destroy everything that stood in their path. Really terrible. And uh, the people who actually surrendered were treated okay. So Josephus, for example, he was Jewish, and he was actually a commander of the defense of the Galilee, but he just gave in to the Romans. And the Romans said, okay, you're kind of cool. You could join our team. And that's why he got a first-hand account of everything that the Romans were doing as they were taking over or retaking over the land of Israel. But eventually they got to Jerusalem, and now all the Jews are huddled in the city of Jerusalem. Not all the Jews, mostly many of the Jews. Uh, and again, it has very strong fortifications. Herod, who lived about 70 to 90 years prior, he had built magnificent walls defending the city, and the city seemed almost impregnable. But the problem was, within the city itself, there was so much division and so much arguments as to how to, how to proceed. Uh, there were some groups that wanted to just give in and save as many Jewish lives. There were others that wanted to fight. But regardless, there was enough food and sustenance to go around because there were stockpiles. Uh, they had had they had prepared for such eventualities and there were stockpiles and granaries and enough food to subsist a siege lasting multiple decades. It could have lasted 21 years according to the Talmud based upon the amount of food that they had already in the city. They had a good water supply. They had a temple. Things were okay. Uh, but some of the whippersnappers decided to burn down those uh, storage houses 
and to sabotage the ability of the of the of the nation to be at ease and to force their hand to go fight the Romans. That was the idea. And unfortunately, it didn't lead to what they had desired. Instead, it led to mass starvation and people just dead bodies all over and people emaciated and people resorting to cannibalism. Really, really terrible things that had happened while the siege was ongoing. Anyone that had gone out to forage for any food was captured and crucified, allowed to die just on that horrific, horrific um, manner. And the Romans were just biding their time and allowing the Jews in the city to just die. During that time, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, the great leader of the Jews, was smuggled out. During that, we know that story. He was smuggled out. He met the Roman general overseeing the operation. Vespasian negotiated a settlement with him to allow the rabbis in the city of Yavne to survive, to allow the family of Hillel, the family of the Nasi, to survive. But Jerusalem was doomed. On the 17th day of Tammuz, the Romans finally breached the city and they began a three-week slaughter of any Jews they found inside the city. And that, of course, culminated with the destruction of the Jewish temple on the ninth day of Av. They set the building aflame and the descriptions that we get from both Jewish and Roman sources are quite horrific piles of corpses, unimaginable slaughter and devastation. Temple set aflame. Many of the Jews, instead of fighting, they were tenacious fighters. They just gave up and jumped in the flames themselves. Really horrific, horrific outcomes. And the Talmud tells us that, on, that when did this slaughter in Mas begin? It happened on the 17th of Talmud when the Romans finally were able to pour into the city itself. The next thing that happened on the 17th day of Tammuz is Apustamos burned the Torah. This is a little bit of a mysterious idea because no one quite knows who this Apostamus guy is. Was he Roman? Was he Greek? When did this happen? Was this during the first temple era? Was this during the second temple era? What does it mean? What was this? What is the background behind the burning of the Torah? We know that there's other times where the temple, where the where Torah scrolls were burned. Notably, uh, Hadrian, for example, he took one of the great rabbis in the 130s. Uh, his name was Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, one of the greatest sages of the time, and he wrapped him in a Torah scroll, and he burned them both together. And that is one of the memorable stories told in the Talmud, in the book of Avodah Zarah, page 18a. This great rabbi is teaching Torah. They grab him. They wrap him in the Torah scroll that he was teaching. They set it all aflame, but they don't set him aflame. They actually surround him with fire. And they wrap him in the Torah scroll in order to prolong his agony. And then he has conversations with his students there. And they ask him, what do you see? And he says, well, I see the parchments being burned, but not the letters. The letters are flying up to heaven. That's what he says. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about some other Torah scroll being burned. And we know it's happened many times. There have been book burnings throughout Jewish history, uh, which are really devastating Today, we, you just go back to the store and buy a new book. God forbid if your book is burned. But in those days, everything is handwritten, and the manuscripts are the most precious things that we have in, in Jew, uh, the earthly possessions. The most preciously, precious earthly possessions of the Jew in antiquity is the various manuscripts that they have. Certainly a Torah scroll. The epitome of the Holy Article is a Torah scroll. And that gets burned. But but it doesn't it doesn't seem to kind of fit in. It's like There's like matters of like national devastation. The golden calf and breaching of the city and some Torah scroll that got burned. So I saw some of the commentators talk about this and I found something very fascinating. First of all, you notice, it doesn't say that Torah strolls were burned. It's not like there was some national decree, burn every Torah scroll you can find. It says the Torah scroll, as if there's a specific Torah scroll that we're talking about that is being burned. So what is it? So I found an interesting answer, which really kind of makes this, uh, everything here makes sense. It said, we know that when Moshe was about to die, he wrote 13 Torah scrolls. One of them was given to each tribe, and a 13th one was kept in the archives in the Ark of the Covenant, which kept in it the most important items of the Jewish nation. The tablets, both the broken and the extant ones, 
Aaron's staff that sprouted almonds, the vial of manna that they saved that they would use to show uh, to show future generations, look, God can take care of us, and Moshe's Torah scroll written by the hand of Moshe. And that would be quite valuable because if you wanted to f- verify the actual correct text, the Torah is a, quite a large document and there are no computers to check for accuracy, what do you do? Which Torah scrolls do you use to copy, to make new ones, and which ones do you use to verify if there's a discrepancy between your Torah scroll in your community and the one in the community, the neighboring community, which one is accurate? You go to the temple, you access Moshe's edition, and you look, what does it say there? Moshe, the man of God, his Torah scroll is certainly accurate. And that was quite a valuable thing. And what this commentator proposes is that which Torah scroll, it's the Torah scroll, the Torah scroll of the Jewish nation, that was burned by this uh, heinous apostamus on this date. And of course, that would be an event that pertains to matters of national interest, not just some Torah scroll, which of course, it's, it's a devastating tragedy. If any Torah scroll gets burned, God forbid, we know if a Torah scroll gets injured or gets burned, we actually give it a Jewish burial. It's, bur- it's buried with much honor. Uh, and much prestige. It's, it's, it's an, it's an, it's an essence of holiness, the Torah scroll. But this particular Torah scroll is exceedingly valuable. It's written by the hand of Moshe. And therefore, when it is destroyed, uh, it's a national treasure that's destroyed. And the, therefore, it fits in with the rest of the things that happens on the, on the 17th day of, of Tammuz. He adds another point that this would also serve as a valuable way to thwart the heretics. If you actually have the actual scroll written by Moshe, it would provide a lot of ammunition against the people who question the legitimacy of Torah, the divinity of Torah, etc. Now, he does add a caveat. Maybe this wasn't Moshe's Torah scroll, because after all, so much, so much time has elapsed since Moshe. Maybe it was the scroll written by Ezra. We know Ezra, in his time was the undisputed leader of the Jewish people in the same way that Moshe was the undisputed leader of his people during his time. And he also wrote a Torah scroll that was considered to be authoritative. And therefore, when that got destroyed, uh, maybe, maybe maybe it was Ezra's Torah scroll. And that's what he, and other commentators I see say write that as well. But regardless, it was a Torah scroll of national importance that got destroyed on the 7th day of Thomas. The final thing that happened on the 7th day of Tammuz was that some idol was erected in the temple. It's not clear if this was an idol brought about by the Jews, like the king Menashe, who was a Jewish king, but was also an idolatrous king. Or it was in the second temple. We also know that after the second temple was destroyed, the Romans made the temple mount into an idolatrous sanctuary for their Roman god, Jupiter. And again, these things are a, a defilement of all that is holy. It's a profaning of the temple, something that really is quite disturbing. And that happened on the 17th day of Thomas. Moving on to the bad things that happened on Tishabav. The first thing, the original Tishabav, is the story we read in the Torah last week, the impartial Shlach, the story of the spies, the scouts. Moshe sends a team of 12 leaders of the nation, goes out the land of Israel. They spend 40 days in the land of Israel, examining it, trying to find the vulnerabilities and the weaknesses of the indigenous population. They come back and they give a full-scale report. It's a fantastic land, but the people are unconquerable. People are massive. and We felt so small. We felt like grasshoppers in their eyes. They looked down at us. Everyone's dying. It is a dangerous place. We can't, we can't be victorious. And the whole nation buys into the report and they ignore the words of Yehoshua, of Joshua and Caleb, the two of the ten spies that remained true to the mission and believed in God and said, well, yes, maybe they are so difficult to overcome, but so what? We have the ultimate weapon on our side. We have God. We got the magic bullet, but the nation started crying. And God, in the Midrash, quotes what God said, so to speak. They're crying for naught. I'm going to give them a good reason to cry. They, you want to cry this night? I'm going to give you a very good reason to cry. And that became the ninth. That was the, that was the first event that happened on the ninth of Av. And therefore, there's been a lot of tears 
Jewish tears that have been shed on that day, tears with genuine causes. So like we said, the first temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av by the Babylonians. The second temple was destroyed on the 9th of Av by the Romans. When we look at the temple being destroyed, it's more than just the edifice of the temple being destroyed. It is the pride of the nation being destroyed and is also the last stand of the Jews having sovereignty and hegemony over the land. Both destructions of the temple resulted in exile. The Babylonians, of course, began the exile way beforehand, where they they took a lot of the leaders to Babylon in chains, and then the Jewish people made the sad decision to revolt anew, and then they came back and destroyed everything, including the temple, and took the rest of the Jews to Babylon. So the destruction of the temple is the climax of terrible, terrible things that had happened and resulted in the Jews being booted from the land. And the Romans, the same thing. The Romans, uh, they took control over the land in the first century before the Common Era, Pompey and then, of course, Julius Caesar. And things really were heading south quite rapidly during that whole time period. But they reached the culmination in the year 70 with the destruction of the temple and the ensuing slaughter. Uh, Now, of course, we all know the story of Masada, uh, or Masada, uh, that happened in the year 73. So it's a little bit after the temple is destroyed. It's the last holdout, but the rest of the nation, the rest of the land had already uh, been subjected to harsh Roman rule. The Jews were evicted from Jerusalem, were not allowed to go into Jerusalem. It became the first Judenrein city, the first city that was bereft of Jews, and the Jews had to pick up the pieces after it was destroyed. Uh, and again, the temple also refers to an intimate link between the Jewish nation and God. And once the temple is destroyed, that link is severed. And our efforts ever since and our prayers ever since have been all about restoring that connection, restoring that link and rebuilding the temple. Now, the Talmud actually points out that uh, the temple wasn't actually destroyed on that day per se. Uh, they entered the temple on the seventh day, and then they defiled it, defiled its sanctity on the seventh and the eighth and the ninth. And the end of the ninth, they put it to the flame. And it was burning that whole following day. And Rabbi Yochanan, one of the great rabbis, said, well, if I was around at that time, I would have made the tenth day of of." the actual day of mourning, because the majority of the temple was burning on that day. Uh, but the Talmud actually says, yes, that the majority of the temple was burned, but the actual initiation of the conflagration happened on the ninth day of Av. Regardless, this is the reason why the actual mourning does not end on the ninth of Av. It kind of continues into the next day as well. The third thing, that, the fourth thing that happened on the ninth of Av is that the city was plowed. The verse tells us that Zion, like a field, will be plowed. Temple Mount used to be much higher than the surrounding mountains. Uh, We know that the Dome of the Rock, for example, covers a rock that is about 20 feet exposed from the bedrock. The Talmud makes it quite clear that what is in all likelihood that same rock was exposed three fingers above the ground which, again, gives credence to the argument that it was plowed. But also Jewish sources and Roman sources, they all agree that the Temple Mount and that area was raised where they actually just dug dug it up. And this was done in all likelihood by someone by the name of Turnus Rufus. Turnus Rufus is a Roman overseer of the land, a procurator of the land. And there's many memorable conversations that he had conducted with the great Rabbi Akiva, who at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century of the Common Era, is the leader of the Jewish nation. And he uh, would have these conversations with Turnus Rufus, or Tinius Rufus, who was the Roman guy in charge. And he, probably uh, under the instruction of Hadrian, was commanded to use Jewish slave labor to actually plow the mountain. That happened or that began, or that concluded on the ninth day of Av. And finally, the city of Betar was devastated, was destroyed on the ninth of Av. This is a reference to the Bar Kokhba revolt. 
in the year 132, the Jews got fed up with the Romans, got fed up with the Hadrianic persecutions, and they said, we're going to mount a revolt, get the Romans out, which they promptly did. They were led by Shimon Bar Kochba. His real name was Shimon Bar Koziva, but he was renamed Bar Kochba apparently by Rabbi Akiva. Bar Kochba means the son of the star. A reference to the verse that says, Darach Kochav Meyakov, a star will emerge from Jacob, a reference to the Messiah. Rabbi Kiva and most of the rabbis, they believe that Shimon Bar Kochba is going to be the Messiah to bring the Jews back to Israel and rebuild the temple. And all signs were pointed at that happening. They managed to evict the Romans out of the land. They repurposed, refashioned Roman coins into Jewish coins. Uh, they minted their own coins, and themes were all as well during those several years of this revolt. It was the most successful revolt during the entire period of Pax Romana. But unfortunately, the Romans regrouped. <coughs> the Romans regrouped, and they began their assault on the enemy. And in the year 135, all of Bar Kokhba's forces were coalesced in a very fortified city of Betar. And for a several reasons, Bar Kokhba strayed away from God. He started killing some rabbis who he thought were traitors. He told God, listen, don't you don't need to help me. I'm okay. Just don't help the enemy. And he really went awry. He was renamed back to Ben Koziva or Bar Koziva. He's no longer the son of the star. He's now the son of the deception, of the fraud. And the city of Betar is, again, laid siege to by the Romans. And eventually it is destroyed, and the slaughter that ensued rivaled that of the temple itself. According to Roman sources, we have 580,000 people killed. The Talmud describes that there were such rivers of blood that the Gentile farmers did not need to use fertilizer for seven years. And the Romans, their cruelty, did not allow the Jews to even bury their dead. So for seven years after this destruction, this devastation, they uh, there were just masses of corpses all over the whole region. Really terrible. When did this all happen? On the 9th of Av. The aftershocks of the temple being destroyed is the destruction, the fall of Betar that happened 65 years later. And throughout the rest of history, there's been many other things that happened, many terrible calamitous things that happened on the 9th of Av. For example, the first crusade in the year 1095-1096, it was announced on the 9th of Av. Of course, that resulted in the devastation of French Jewry. And the tens of thousands of Jews were killed as a result of this crusade. The Ashkenazi Jews were previously known as the Tzif of the Tsar Fatim, which means the French Jews. Uh, but French Jewry was devastated and as a result of the first and the second crusade. And therefore, uh, that also got kick-started on the 9th of Av. The Jews were expelled from England in 1290 on the 9th of Av. The expulsion from Spain in 1492 also happened on the 9th of Av. Uh, World War I that caused unprecedented devastation across Europe and set the stage for World War II and the Holocaust. That also began on the 9th of Av. And even during World War II itself, the mass deportation of Jews from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka also began on the 9th of Av. It is a day that will live in infamy, but still does. A day that we want to mourn the terrible things that happened and also reflect on the reasons why those terrible things are not being rectified. The 17th day of Thomas and the 9th of Av are days of fast days. And the Rambam explains the idea of fasting. Uh, in chapter 5 of the Laws of Fasting, Halacha number 1. And he says, quote, There are days that all of Israel fasts on them because of the terrible things that happened on those days. Why? In order to awaken the hearts, to open the pathways of repentance, and it shall be a remembrance for our own bad actions and the actions of our fathers that is like our days. So much so, that is like our actions. That is like our actions. So much so that it caused to them and to us those devastations, those uh, tribulations, those sufferings. 
because when we remember those things, return in repentance to rectify our ways, to make them better, and to atone for the sins of our forefathers and our own sins. This is the idea that we started off the talk on, that it's not just to remember bad things for the sake of remembering bad things, but in order to rectify those things, uh, those underlying causes that caused those bad things to happen, our forefathers did them, and we continue to do them as evident by the fact that that those results are not being undone. Now, just a brief overview of some of these laws, because again, these are times of mourning, bookended by fasts on the first and the final day of these three weeks. But for the duration of the three weeks, there are several things which are prohibited in line with fasting and mourning. So number one, a haircuts and shaving is prohibited. Uh, so therefore, if you see these uh, otherwise clean-shaven rabbis that suddenly look like homeless people, that's bec- uh, during these weeks because they're observing these laws Weddings. Weddings are not held during these three weeks because weddings are times of great, great joy and great celebration. And it is not in line with the attitude, the prevailing attitude of fasting. Uh, also playing or listening to music. These are things that evoke joy for some people. And therefore they are not to be done during these times. There are workarounds for some of these things. For example, a cappella which is like music, but it's there's no musical instruments, that would be okay. Uh, if someone is a music teacher, for example, that's their livelihood, that would also be okay. And I have a whole book over here that answers 400 of the most commonly asked questions about the three weeks. So one of the things, for example, is that if someone uh, cannot walk into their corporate job or engage with business uh, relationships looking like a homeless person, then they will be allowed to shave, obviously. Uh, there are other workarounds as well. Now, the first fast, the 70th day of, of Tamas, is a minor fast, meaning that the fast only begins at dawn and ends at nightfall. It's 12 hours of fasting. Not a big deal. Uh, fasting means no eating and no drinking on, by the Jewish parlance. Uh, there's no prohibition against Torah study. Uh, there are certain prayers that we say that are reflective of the attitude of the day, but it is a minor fast day. So, for example, if someone is ill, if someone could become ill, if someone is more sickly, um, of course, they don't fast on that day. Whereas in Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av, there are additional prohibitions uh, on the fast day. It's like Yom Kippur, that there's five prohibitions uh, that extend beyond eating and drinking. Uh, showering putting any oils or applying anything, any makeup would be prohibited. Wearing leather shoes would be prohibited. Marital intercourse is also prohibited on that day. Even work is prohibited on that day. It's not a hard and fast rule prohibited, but it's certainly frowned upon. Anything that could bring any joy, like Torah studies also, it's only it's the one day of the year that Torah study is prohibited. Now, the morning is kicked up a notch during the month of Av, uh, the nine days preceding the ninth of Av. All forms of rejoicing are forbidden. Like the Mishnah says, we diminish in joy. We don't engage on home renovation projects. Uh, Laundering clothing is prohibited. Wearing new or laundered clothing, uh, buying or making new clothing, eating meat or drinking wine, unless it's in a su'udas mitzvah, which means a, a meal that is related to a mitzvah like a conclusion of a a tractate of Talmud or a circumcision ceremony, uh, or bathing for pleasure. Those are the added things that are prohibited during that month, during those those nine days preceding the ninth of Av. But I think more than just these prohibitions, I think it's important to reflect on the loss that we have in the spiritual state of our nation. Like the Talmud says, every generation, the temple is not rebuilt in it, it's as if it was destroyed. We have to try to look at ourselves and see how what could we do to make sure that we are contributing. We're an asset, so to speak, that's contributing towards the rebuilding of the temple. Are we taking the steps to ensure personally that we are not going to be someone who is going to contribute towards extending the exile, extending the destruction, the devastation? Rather, we're going to be contributing towards the rebuilding. And there is a 
I think, uh, an optimistic element to this whole time period. The Talmud tells us that uh, there's a prayer that we say every day called the Tachanon. Tachanon prayer. Tachanon prayer is a prayer of mourning that we say every day. And the one day that we don't say it is on the 9th of Av, which seems to be quite counterintuitive. If it's the day of mourning, it's a day of of despondency, of 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 mirthfulness. Why don't we say the Tachanon prayer? So the Talmud tells us because the, this ninth day of Av is a holiday. This is a holiday? How do you call such a horrible day a holiday? So the commentaries explain that, yes, we live in a world where there is no temple, where there is no intimate direct link to God in our midst. However, when our actions caused the temple to be destroyed, God had two options, destroy the Jewish nation or destroy the temple. And by destroying the temple, he opted to preserve the nation. And that is something to celebrate. The fact that the way it's described in Jewish literature, God poured his wrath on wood and stone. Ultimately, the temple was a building. The building itself was stripped of its spiritual power because of our action. And God unleashed his wrath on the building, but not on the nation. Yes, of course, the nation suffered. Of course, we've been suffering ever since, but we're still around. And ironically, the suffering itself assured that the nation will survive and will continue and will eventually be reborn. A lot of the great empires and cultures of yesteryear, they didn't, they weren't destroyed, they just fizzled out. But these events that are so painful at the time and are so sad looking back, they're actually events that ensure that we won't actually dissipate and just fizzle out into the annals of history. And thus, the fact that the temple was destroyed and all those terrible things did happen, but the fact that we could look back at them and we could mourn over them and we could try, could try to scheme of ways to undo them and to rectify them, that in itself is a testament that we're still standing and we will live to survive and to face another day and another year and another decade, another century, and we are the eternal nation.